So this afternoon we'll be returning to the meditative cultivation of loving kindness. This going back this time, going back to primary sources, the Buddha's own guidance for cultivating this quality of the heart. And as you may recall from last time, just the sense of kind of really very much of an expanding sphere, really three-dimensional, up and down to all sides around. So kind of a, an expanding sphere, a field of loving-kindness, attending to those in all directions, just moving out and out and out and out, without boundary, immeasurably. So, very simple practice. I'd like to keep my prefatory comments this time a bit briefer than I have over the last several days to make sure that we have plenty of time, as much time as we need, for discussion. Whatever comes up, I see it looks like there's only one question here, but there may be more that you're holding in mind, uh, especially since we're about to face an unstructured day, uh, our Sunday. So just a, a couple of comments on that. Um, how you spend your Sunday is really up to you. It's really up to you. I'm not monitoring it. I don't have spies. Who went to town? Who didn't? What did you do? How, ma- how much money did you spend? And what did you spend it on? I don't care. I mean, I care. I mean, if you went off and got drunk, I think that's kind of too bad. But it's your business. It's your business. Clearly, we all came here to do something beneficial for ourselves. And so, however you envision, Sunday as being something really beneficial, go for it. But it does set here a nice template where we have some structure, frankly not a whole lot, and it's just as much as I want, two hours, all of us together each day, six days a week, not much. But it does provide some real structure. There's something that we I ask everybody to come to. I, come, I show up. So six days, I make a point of it. Six days a week, there we are. And then one day a week, just no structure at all. And here we are in an environment where, by and large, no demands on your time, no appointments, no obligations, nothing you have to do, just like clear blue sky in all directions, like 24 hours, whoa, unstructured, wide open, once a week. And then knowing that you just, now you can fill that, you can be, it's like an unsculpted block of granite or marble, and you're the... You're the sculptor, and now you can shape it any way you like. Quite some freedom. It's a lovely anticipation. And as you get into the rhythm in this, we still have six weeks to go. So we're one quarter through now. You get into the rhythm of that of once a week. Well, we have structure, you have, we have the interviews and so forth. A couple of interviews, but it's a little exception. Happy to see you. Two people coming tomorrow morning. Um, but on the whole, really wide open. But getting into that flow of once a week, wide open, and it's just all for Dharma. It's just one day just for Dharma. It's a nice habit. It's a really nice habit. And it's one that at least some of you might be able to carry over when you go home. Even if you have very busy lives, families, work, social obligations, and so forth. I think it's really one of the great gifts that the The Jewish tradition has given, actually it's given to humanity nowadays. One day a week off, that's just not part of the Buddhist tradition at all. 
Monks don't take a vacation. Buddhists have holidays all over the place, but you know something regular that's just one day a week, take a break. Uh, not part of the Buddhist tradition. It's really the, Jew, the Jews brought this to us. Seventh day, God took a rest, so everybody else gets to it as well. It's a nice notion. And of course, what that often means, it means many things for different people. In modernity, where it's simply the day off or the weekend is off, it means that all the wear and tear, all the exhaustion, the fatigue and so forth of the first five or six days, now we get to just more relaxed, uh, relax and watch football and entertain ourselves and kind of ease up a little bit. So, hedonic exhaustion, hedonic revival, hedonic exhaustion, hedonic revival, and you're dead. And that's kind of welcome to Sabbath, you know, it's just a little bit of, little bit of damage repair, damage control over a life that is just running out as you shrivel up and get old and die. <laughs> yeah, but we, we may as well be blunt once in a while, right? That's, we're just getting older get sicker and then we die. And so that's one way, but of course that's not what the great sages of the Jewish tradition had in mind. Uh, but one day, we really bring this now into contemplative context, where it really belongs, is one day that, at least one day, is just all about the cultivation of genuine happiness. And then they just to shape it, shape it. So you might consider that as a possibility, as you anticipate in six weeks going someplace else that's not here, one day, just coming back, and already having had the experience six, seven, eight times of structuring it yourself. No outside discipline, no outside structure, no teacher, no other people, you know, no group pressure or support. Just there you are, creating your own day. Be really nice. So, coming back to today, this practice. Letting awareness go out. Now there are multiple ways of doing this. One possibility, and I'll just front load this a little bit, is just to, after having settled the body, speech and mind in the natural state, to allow your awareness just to kind of go open, as if you're settling the mind in its natural state, and just see who comes knocking on your door. You know, whether it's your children, family loved ones, parents, people you've had problems with, just see who just spontaneously comes up. And then who com comes up? First, just an image, which if you are practicing settling the mind in its natural state, you'd see the image come up, you'd know the image, the image would dissolve away, and that would be all there would to it. You wouldn't, as you know now, you're kind of getting accustomed to this, the image comes up, you don't slingshot your attention. And go off and attend to the person who is there and then. You know, you don't slingshot anywhere. Your, rest, your awareness is resting like space. The image comes up. Image goes away. No movement. But now when we're cultivating loving kindness, we're not cultivating loving kindness for images. They don't have any feelings. No reason to cultivate loving kindness for them. Any more than you do for a cinema screen or a television. No loving kindness for television. Nobody in there. There's nobody in there, right? It's just, just machines. But there, in this practice, the image comes up, and then we take that as an invitation, and then attend to the person, him or herself, attending closely. So we can go into just complete free flow. Just 
not free association so much of one thing giving rise to another, all linked together with grasping. But see who comes to mind, attend closely, and then this breathing out, breathing out. So I think you're a bit familiar with that. Some of you have found that when settling the mind in its natural state, in doing so, not much comes to mind. So it's kind of like, hello, nobody's knocking at my door, nobody's coming for a visit, there's nothing much to do, I'm waiting, I'll give you snacks. <laughs> Please come, you know. <laughs> Or somebody come to my door, you know. And so if nobody comes knocking, then you can, you know, send out party favors. <laughs> that is, invite them in. You know? <laughs> Bring somebody in. Okay, you know, get, get, get the lasso of your mind. <laughs> Tay, you're it. You know, I'm going to focus on you now. So you can do that too. You don't have to just wait and wait and wait. If nobody's coming in, then you can invite somebody in. Invite them over for, you know, a little meal. A little loving kindness, a little meta meal. You can do that. So, two points. Two points. That such practice can be very transformative, very helpful, very beneficial for one's own mind. My mind is utterly clear, perfectly clear. It can be very helpful. But we can also ask another legitimate question, and that is, as we are attending to others, are we really, is the whole practice just taking place inside our heads? What, I don't know exactly how thick the skull is, but what, quarter of an inch maybe, something like that, half a centimeter. Is it all just kind of located inside this pretty hard case? So, that just all loving kindness inside my brain, is that as far as it goes? Or is any impact outside my brain? When I'm attending to someone else, my mother who is alive, or my wife, or friends, or so forth and so on, just people I know of, or know. Is there any connection? Or is this purely a subjective, enclosed activity? Irrelevant to anybody else. I think we should leave that as an open question. But open mind, not just saying, oh, who knows? Maybe some people do know. I'll give you one anecdote that at least raises I think some interesting questions. It's not conclusive proof of anything, so I'm not implying that an anecdote is a scientific proof. But an anecdote is a little chunk of reality. It's not a non-reality. Some of you may, may have heard the story, but it's worth telling again. Several years back, I was leading a retreat, one-week retreat, mostly shamatha, I think it was shamatha, for scientists. But the scientist that I co-organized this with was a, uh, is a very fine man. A neurologist, brain scientist, very smart, very accomplished, very eminent in his field. And uh, he said, Alan, let's have a, uh, let's have a retreat. Not for the clinicians, because they, they do something different than what we do. We academic neuroscientists, cognitive psychologists, and so forth. It's a little bit, you know, they do something different. So we'll have it just for the more hard scientists. Okay, try it. So we had 30, 35 of them come. Among them, was, and they were very, very bright, all of them all over the world, highly educated, very smart, very critical, and open enough, open-minded enough to come to a meditation retreat. Quite quite significant. Many people wouldn't do that. And so among them was one distinguished, distinguished 
psychologist, chair of his department, published many, many papers, very erudite, of course very smart, it goes without saying, very skeptical, very skeptical of anything spiritual, actually has a strong anti-religious bent, for good reasons, I understand his reasons, personal history. So he came to this, he was open-minded enough to show up, and we're doing mindfulness of breathing, first three days. Then we're doing settling the mind, right? two, three days. Getting about five days into the retreat, and of course, as here, there's time for question and answer. So, about four or five days into the retreat, pops up his hand, and he said, settling the mind is natural state, and something quite remarkable happened. The man's roughly my age. This was just a few years ago. He said, I was just sitting there settling the mind, and then, out of nowhere came this recollection of a little girl I knew when I was about 10 years old. So this is decades ago. I haven't thought about her for decades. She came up, and I remember the detail was so, so precise. Her name, who she was, what she looked like, the context. It wasn't just getting a snapshot. I just suddenly just was flooded with memories about this little girl I knew when I was a kid. And they, you know, it was no big deal. It was not a, it was not a, an intense relationship. Two little kids knew each other. That was it, you know. So it wasn't any emotionally charged memory. It's just memory. That was what odd. If you, if you have suppressed traumatic memories, and then they come and meditate. Oh, then they understand that. They're, they're pushed down and finally you don't push down and boom, out they come and you, out come the emotions. No big emotion. Just a little girl he knew when he was 10 years old. But he was struck that it was really, he was struck as a very critical man that he had this strong intuitive sense. His memories were valid. He wasn't making this up. Her name, the details of it, you know, where they knew each other and again, just a lot of detail. He had, had this strong sense. This was, this was a real memory. Not some, Fiction creation. So, so he shared his experience, and I said, yep, that happens. Not a whole lot to say. It happens. So, but he, he found it very interesting. So the retreat came to an end. Everybody disbanded back to their home countries and places. Then about three or four days after the retreat, he can't remember, actually, whether he emailed me or phoned me. can't remember. I think probably emailed don't remember. But he contacted me. And he said, Alan, I found, shared, shared that experience with you, this old memory coming up, and I found it quite interesting. Um, but something very peculiar happened yesterday. And I just got a telephone call. And a woman phoned me up. And she said, hello, Professor, blah, blah. Uh, you probably don't remember me. <laughs> but my name is this. And you just came to mind. And anybody who knows academia, academics are very easy to find. You Google their name and the university, and bam, you got their email. It's really, really easy. Academics are public figures. And so she, for whatever reason, she, his name came up, and she Googled him, and there he was, she contacted him. And she said, you know, you just came to mind, and I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. I'm just curious about you. What's up? So they had some kind of conversation. I don't know what they said, but he said, Alan, at the end of that conversation, he said, Alan, I came to your retreat very, very skeptical. I'm a little bit less skeptical. 
<laughs> Not much, I think. A little bit. So, that's just an anecdote. Just an anecdote. But, and one can always say, the brain-dead response, just, an, just a coincidence, which of course explains nothing, it's just saying something when you have nothing to say. <laughs> but if one wants to take coincidence seriously, considering the odds of something like 40 years going by, between this person and that person, with zero contact, he thinks of her vividly, and then a couple of days later she contacts him, if you think that coincidence is a really compelling explanation for that, I congratulate you. So might it be that he going into a deeper state of meditation, closer to a substrate, closer to a substrate, you're descending, your awareness is descending to the substrate, oh, and then she comes up, could it be that that somehow, on some mysterious level, contacted her substrate? And then out of the blue, she had the sense, oh, I wonder how he's doing. And then she contacts him. So it's just an anecdote, but there are many anecdotes like that, suggesting that our minds are not as localized as we may assume. And assume overall for good reason, that there may be multiple dimensions and dimensions that are entangled. Entangled. And this is a Buddhist truth. This is a Buddhist truth. That all sentient beings are entangled. We are arising in mutual interdependence. Even though each person's individual substrate consciousness is distinct, utterly uniquely configured, there are past experiences, memories, proclivities, habits, insights, virtues and vices. Every person's continuum is absolutely unique and yet not isolated, not inherently existent, that is, radically separate from environment, but it said this is the most inconceivable aspect of reality, is the intertwining of karma, how individual mind streams engage in activities, sometimes more in, in a solitary mode, sometimes more collectively, as we are here, 40, 41 people, here collectively engaging in something, with something of a common vision, at the same time, each one unique, so there's collective karma going on right now, there's the individual karma going on right now, and all of this is embedded in a, you know, in an overall vastness of reality, entangled with karma, the staff and the people in the sports center and the school and Klaus and so forth and so on. But we are entangled on deeper, deeper levels. And so it is now to speak from the Buddhist perspective. It's certainly possible. It's certainly possible. As we bring individuals to mind, or they simply come to mind, and we attend to them with thoughts of loving-kindness, that it actually can have an impact. It can actually touch, touch their being. And it can only be, it can only be a benevolent touch. So, I would certainly seriously challenge the notion that minds are totally local. I just don't believe it. I think the evidence is too strong, to the contrary. But minds on a coarse level are local. My coarse mind, Alan Wallace's coarse mind, the superficial level, that's pretty localized, very closely related to this brain activity, these eyes, these ears, and so forth. Yes. But as soon as you go down to deeper levels, down to substrate consciousness, not so clearly, it's not even dependent upon the brain. Activities correlated, yes. Dependent, no. Let alone 
the deepest dimension, which is non-local and atemporal, pristine awareness. And these are not isolated. It's not like there's one chunk with a lead barrier between the coarse mind and then this dimension, this, the subtle mind, or substrate consciousness, and then a barrier, and then something. All of these mysteriously and free flow. And it's tapping into a state, tapping into a dimension that is beyond time. Hence, I know a number of you, on the basis of your own experience, are persuaded that there is such a thing as precognition, precognitive dreams and so forth. Some of you are not from your own experience. There is such a thing as remote viewing, knowing things that are taking place far distant in space. Some of you know that. And the Buddhist tradition as a whole says, yeah, you didn't know about that? (laughs) I guess you missed something. So, quite open. That was one point. Second, final point, I find very useful. When we attend to the full unfolding of the practice of the meditative cultivation of loving kindness, we'll see in Buddha Gosa's writing that after he lays out the basic strategy, the sequence of meditations, then there's a whole rather long section, he says, on breaking down the barriers. And that's when we as we're attending to others, whether we do it very sequentially, the loved one, the casual friend, the neutral person, the enemy, and so forth, whether we go very linearly, or we just go out into the expanse and see who comes to mind. Either way, as we attend to others, it's bound to be the case, until we've achieved immeasurable loving-kindness, that when some people come to mind, there will be some resistance. That the, the open-heartedness, the affection, the warmth, the caring, not so much. Not so much. Right? And so then he gives a, a series of meditations to try to break down those barriers. Break down those barriers. There's a theme that's directly relevant to this. I won't give all of the, the methods that he gives. Just in one theme. From the Lojong literature, the mind training literature of Tibetan Buddhism primarily. Comes in the seven point mind training, it comes elsewhere. It's quite a a shocking statement as a theme, a topic for meditation. And the the, the phrase is, view everyone else's faults as your own. That's shocking. It's almost insulting. It's almost insulting. I mean, there are serial killers out there, there are rapists, there are child molesters, there are ethnic cleansers, and so forth and so on. I say, oh, come on. I mean, I got my faults, but I'm not a serial killer. I don't torture people. You know, so when I say, I'm sorry, that might be a nice thought. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Those are not my faults. And you're right. You're right. To say, oh, you're, oh you know, the serial killers over here, all of you over there, you're basically all the same. That's, that's not realistic. So where is this coming from then? Because you know, it's coming from people like Atisha, nobody's fool. As long as we're identifying with, identifying with our coarse mind, our normal mind, what kind of mental afflictions arise? What kind of faults, problems arise? To what extent? To what intensity? If anger comes up, are you looking for a gun to shoot somebody? Probably not. Don't think so. And so what's the bandwidth? And so you can say, okay, this is who I am. I'm locked in here. I get, I get, I get craving. 
but I don't have massive addictions, and so forth. And so this, this is my matter. And I'm not like you people over here. I, this is this is what this is where I am. And that's true, in your course mind, your normal mind, your habitual mind. But that's also a snapshot. That's a snapshot. That's where you are now. Given multiple influences, the most from the Buddhist perspective, the most powerful influence, the deepest influence, in terms of this conditioning, what you're bringing to this life with your substrate consciousness. That's really big. It is really big. We find so many cases where the situation may be incredibly dire, you know, a really tough, tough neighborhood in the poorest part of Chicago or south central LA. Gangs and warfare and drugs and malevolence and so forth. And then find right in the midst of that some kid whose father is gone and his mother's an alcoholic and a drug addict and so forth. And some kid rises up there and just shines like a star. You say, wow, how did that happen? Oh, powerful, powerful influence. Coming into that, surmounting it all, moving right on. It happens. It happens while many others succumb to the environment. And likewise, others born into incredibly, incredibly good fortune, incredible good fortune, loving parents, plenty of bounty, physical bounty, good education, and they just turn out terrible, terrible people. You know, it happens. And the parents could then wring their, pull out their hair, wring their hands, what did we do wrong? What did we do wrong? Maybe nothing. There were impulses there big, powerful currents, came into a very benign environment and still found some way to screw it up. So it happens. But we come back to this central theme, and it's so relevant to the cultivation of loving-kindness. From one perspective, is it actually true to say, all the faults that I perceive in others, they're mine? Here's the psychological truth. I would suggest. I think it's a deep psychological truth. And that is, we cannot apprehend the fault in anyone else that we can't resonate with. For which we don't have the seeds. Very possibly not full-blown. I've never killed anybody. Okay? Do I have the capacity? Can I imagine being so angry at someone? Kill them. I can imagine. Sure, Imagination. I don't have imagination deficit disorder in that regard. Yeah, I can imagine. Have I done it? No. Do I think it will happen? No, I don't. I really don't. I'm going to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen. But can I imagine it? Yeah, I can. I can. I can. Can I imagine the mindset of the people in Al-Qaeda who have such a terrifically strong commitment to their beliefs, passionate belief, this is the only way, this is what is pleasing to God, and even if there's suffering, some suffering on the side, this will be for the greater good. This will be for the good of all of humanity and willing to make any sacrifice on their part and on anybody else's part to realize this vision they hold to be the greatest good. I can imagine that. They're living like monks. Monks with, you know, semi-automatic weapons and bombs and poisons and so forth. But besides that, where are the women there? You know, they're all like monks, like ascetics. So, when we attend to the faults in others, they rise up to meet us. You're seeing something that makes sense to you. 
It's the same thing with virtues. A person who has never experienced deep compassion. It's never come up. Maybe a brutal upbringing, abuse, suffering, misery, hatred, and so forth. Never sees it in, their, in that person's local environment as a child growing up. Never sees compassion. The word doesn't even mean anything. A person could enter that world, that person's field, who is embodying compassion. A person may not see it. Does not compute. I see you're doing something here. What's your angle? What's your angle? It looks like you're doing something right now, but yeah, it looks like that's really nice. What's your angle? I know something's up. What? Don't see it. It's not in your repertoire. It's, it's not in your bandwidth. Don't see it. When we try to imagine people who have tremendously high realization, whether in Dzogchen or realization of emptiness or uncontrived bodhicitta, we see what we can see. We can see what we can see. Remember years ago somebody, totally secular person, so many years ago, 25 years ago, went to hear the Dalai Lama speak at a university in California. Guy came afterwards and spoke to me and said, I saw the, uh, saw the Dalai Lama speak. Seems like a nice guy. That's what he got. He got a nice guy. It's true. Do you agree? He's a nice guy. And that was it. That's, that's what he could see. He's a nice guy. Not bad. For a heretic. <laughs> so there we are. I want to wrap this up. But as we're attending, psychologically speaking, when we're seeing the faults in others, we're seeing the flowering of seeds that we're holding in our own mind streams. If the seeds weren't there, we couldn't see it. Couldn't imagine it. Malice. If you've never experienced malice, how would you detect that in somebody else? If you've never experienced anything like it, it's so bizarre to, to wish somebody else ill wish them to be to suffer. Why would anybody do that? It's bizarre. People don't do that, do they? I mean, that would be weird. Why would you want anybody else to suffer? Yeah. I'm raising that thing of a naive imagining, never having experienced. How would? Why would anybody do that? Why? It's like eating dirt, eating on feces. Why would anybody feel ill will for another person? Wish another person to suffer? But that would be impossible. It makes no sense. Be like eating on feces. Why would people wouldn't do that? Would they? You know, one could imagine a person never experienced, couldn't even see ill will, be completely perplexed by it. It looked like this person really wants to injure that one, but that can't be. So, when we see the faults in others, we're seeing reflections of our own capacity. And especially, here's the great union of settling the mind in this natural state with the loving kindness. When we see these same impulses arising in our own mind stream, malevolence, whether it's hatred, whether it's craving, selfishness, arrogance, envy, and so forth, we see them rise, introduce themselves, and then vanish off the stage. Rise, play themselves out, and vanish off the stage. See, none of these are I. They arise, they come, and they go. None of them are I. And it's so nice when they go. 
So as we see this in our own mind streams, and then we attend to the sometimes manifestation of those very same mental afflictions in others, manifesting in speech that is harsh, that is malevolent, physical behavior that is brutal, injurious. Since we've seen within, these are not I, and when we look out, we see, that's not you. It's behavior manifesting, because mental affliction somehow captured you, captivated you, mesmerized you, intoxicated you, and you're acting out of delusion. So the Buddha is sometimes called the Great Physician. And a Great Physician will never, ever, ever equate an illness with a person who is ill. Never do that. So the Buddha never does that. So as we attend to the faults in others, if we can attend to them as a, a child of the Great Physician, a follower of the great physician, whether you're Buddhist or not, never mind. But to be a follower of the great physician, to attend to each sentient being. And whenever you see the symptoms of the mental afflictions manifesting behavior, speech, attitude, like a physician, you be well. You be free. It's the only realistic response. It's the only realistic response. Because to ever equate any person with a mental affliction or a mode of behavior is always delusional. So, we're just trying to be realistic here. So, let's find a comfortable position. As an act of loving kindness for yourself, settle your body in its natural state, your respiration in its natural rhythm, calm and soothe the turbulent mind with mindfulness of breathing.
imagine, if you will, that your primal impulse, seeking happiness and freedom from suffering, stems from a very, very deep dimension, the deepest dimension of your being. We call pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. And it will never let you rest. It will keep you in motion. Until you've realized your full potential. Until you have fully awakened. If you will symbolically imagine this dimension of your awareness as a radiant orb of light at your heart, the very source of ultimate well-being and the source of the yearning for such well-being. And from that starting point, envision your own fulfillment. What would make you truly happy? Consider that your imagination does not stretch beyond your capacity. But on the contrary, your imagination can hardly extend to reach the full extent of your capacity. Beyond your wildest dreams. And with each outbreath arouse this yearning according to your own conscious capacity. Arouse the yearning, may I be well and happy. May I realize my heart's desire. With each outbreath, arouse this yearning, and with each outbreath, imagine light, radiant white light emanating from the orb of light at your heart and filling your entire body, your mind, every aspect of your being.
then bringing the full force of your awareness, your mindfulness, to this open expanse of the space of your mind. For just a moment, settle your mind in its natural state, without distraction, without grasping. and see who comes to mind. And practice as before. If at times you simply become spaced out, you may return to the breath, stabilize your mind, return to the practice. If you get long periods of vacuity of no one coming to mind, then invite someone in. Focus clearly, attend closely to whoever comes to mind, to their joys and sorrows, their hopes and fears. And as you breathe out, arouse the yearning, may you, like myself, be truly well and happy. May all your hedonic needs be met. May you find genuine happiness and its causes. And breathe out the light of loving kindness from your heart.
release all appearances. Let your awareness rest in its own nature, clear and pure. So, just one question written down, we can open it up to everybody. In The Attention Revolution, the book, we're describing the conditions that will produce the fruit of shamatha. What is to dispense with compulsive thoughts? Is there a special advice for thoughts that keep coming back and back and back and back? That's why they're called obsessive and compulsive. Persistence. They're per they are persistent. Be more persistent. The good news is that they're not developing more energy. There's nobody behind them. There's no enemy out there that's got something against you and it's going to work harder and harder to make those thoughts come back. It's just sheer mindless momentum. Right? Whereas if you develop it ever-increasing ever intention, motivation, inspiration, vision, enthusiasm, and practice. Your mental afflictions don't have a chance. Because they're not getting stronger. They've just been around, cruising along, chugging away, chugging away, chugging away. But they're not getting stronger. They just grind away mindlessly. Right? Whereas if you rise to, rise to meet them with increasing wisdom and motivation, dedication, discipline, ethics, 
they're going to lose. If they were hardwired, they wouldn't. But I think there's really good evidence they're not hardwired, they're not intrinsic. Really good evidence. So, perseverance. It's a short answer. Never give up. Never give up. Even if it's multiple lifetimes. Have that resolve. Talk to them. Mental victims, your days are numbered. How lucky do you feel to live? Be Clint Eastwood. How lucky are you feeling today? This is your lucky day. So, multiple, multiple methods. Mindfulness of breathing, just release them and release them and release them. Settling the mind. Starve them to death. Because the mental afflictions are fed only when we identify with them. Only when we recoil from them, when we're afraid of them, when we're attached to them, we identify with them, we like them. They feed off of our grasping. And the grasping, whether it's aversion or whether it's attraction, they feed off of it. That's where they get the energy. Not from any source. Not from any outside, outside source. All the energy they're getting is our energy. In other words, they're parasitic. They're getting our energy. Don't give it to them. Come up, mental afflictions. When you settle, you, you're feeling bold, you're feeling brave. When you settle your mind in a natural state, they come up. Be totally present with them. Just like the Buddha after his enlightenment. Came up repeatedly, this happened. After his enlightenment, he knows he's awake. And even after his enlightenment, sometimes Mara would appear to him as some being that could talk, that he could have a conversation with. There are actually Maras that are sentient beings. Mara would appear to him. And Mara would address the Buddha and say, Gautama, you're not really awake. You're fooling yourself. And try to, you know, swindle him. Buddha had only one response. Mara would come up, give him his spiel. And Buddha would just look at him. Mara, I see you. And then the old text say, and then Mara went away disappointed. <laughs> didn't debate with him. Didn't bludgeon him to death. Didn't say, oh no, oh, none of that. Just, I see you. And that was immediate disempowerment. Never had any power in the first place. But Mara went away disappointed. So that's another way. That's another way. Or you can just bring out the laser treatment. Burn a hole right through them. Just burn a hole right through them. Yeah. Awareness of awareness. It's like just like x-ray. You just bing. And the, the beam of your awareness just melts them. It burns right through. I mean, they just... They... They just don't have to stand a chance. When you're going right into the sheer luminosity, the sheer cognizance of awareness, whatever comes up in between evaporates. So that's another way. So we have three methods. It should be enough. Is the list to order your... I think that means latest book, Stilling the Mind, still going to be made? Is it going to be during the retreat? Well, we still have six weeks in the retreat, and I think it takes maybe ten days or so to mail things from the United States. 
So, yeah, has anybody checked with the front desk about book orders? Yes, what's up? What's up, Tracy? So I'll let you know on Monday. Okay. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Kun U about that some days ago. I assumed that something had been done. So that's how it's Monday. Yeah. Um, our, my wonderful friend, Sangha Wangmo, James Elias' wife, uh, I think she's taking care of that. So they may be sending them from Santa Barbara, but that should be taken care of soon. Hola, so there was just one written message. Any questions or comments? Oh, yes. We'll start with Laura, please. You could speak a bit slower. Sometimes something the Dalai Lama. We were talking about the Dalai Lama having made a comment. Yes. About letting go into doing nothing. Quite so. Yes. Sorry, I took notes. And that to truly do nothing, this notion of a complete inactivity, putting the mind out of work. That's actually the quote from your notes. Putting the mind out of work. I found that interesting. And but settling the dualistic mind is not easy. Quite so. So I've got sort of two two questions. What does it mean in meditation to truly do nothing? Which means I'm not working with the breath, mm-hmm. doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's stop and right there. Because I, I, I have one question. I have such a limited mind. You, know? you give me two things, I just get one of them. <laughs> so for a simple-minded person, I'll just deal with one. Very interesting question. And it has multiple levels to it. When we're settling the mind in this natural state, we're deactivating, doing our best to deactivate the coarse mind. The coarse, our normal mind, conceptual, dualistic, caught up in grasping of all kinds, cognitively fusing with everything that comes up. I'm thinking this, I'm feeling that, I'm wanting that. So we're deactivating that. Not completely, because still, for the first seven stages out of nine stages, uh, the practice doesn't go perfectly. That is, the attention falls into excitation and laxity. So we have to do something. It's you know just one of those things. We have to do something. And that is we balance the attention. Recognize it with introspection. Apply the remedy. Come back to center. By the time we get to stage eight out of nine, preceding shamatha, even subtle excitation and subtle laxity no longer arise at all. On stage seven, they don't arise because you're really on guard. They see, they see your glowering gaze. And, okay, I won't. But on stage eight, they just don't arise. In other words, stage seven is the final, the final work of introspection. Just keep on guard. And that should be enough. They probably won't arise. If you're just on guard for them, that will keep them dormant. By stage eight, you don't even need them. They're, they're gone. They're out. It's like you gave them sleeping gas. Like laxity and dullness, laxity and excitation. Gone. So from stage eight, finally, you really can do nothing. You just be present. Just be present. And then you happily watch yourself lose your mind, the last vestiges of your mind, of this dualistic mind, as all of the, the javana, the activities of the mind, subside, and your mind melts into substrate consciousness and the arena, the arena, of the mind, where all the images arise, that dissolves into substrate. So at that point, you've put your mind out of work. But now, what is the referent of the word mind? Your normal coarse mind. But now, what's left in the dissolution, the melting away 
of coarse mind into subtle mind. That's another term for substrate consciousness, something subtle mind. As anything happening there is said to be blissful, luminous, non-conceptual, that is, when you're having the full-fledged experience with the lights on, that is, not just being comatose, anesthetized, deep sleep, or dead, non-lucidly dead. When you gain access to that substrate consciousness with the lights fully on, that is, with no veils, no veils obscuring the innate luminosity of the substrate consciousness, then three characteristics. Bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. But now we speak of subtle mind. Is the subtle mind deactivated? The coarse mind, yes, it's dissolved, it's melted away. But how about the subtle mind? Is that deactivated? Is that doing nothing? The answer is no, it's doing something. It's doing something. And that is the coarse mind, the mind that's immersed in the desire realm. Sees all kinds of things out there to desire to have and to not have. Desire and aversion. So so I get attached to something. This makes me happy. This feels me. I'm a really smart guy. I've got high-tech stuff. I'm really something special. So I've got to hold on to my iPhone. So I'm attached to that. Right. This is a really cool instrument here. And so the coarse mind tends to go out and latch onto things, even intangibles like fame and reputation and so forth. But the subtle mind is too smart for that. Number one, the substrate consciousness is aware of the substrate. There's not a whole lot going on anyway. But you're blissful, you're luminous, you're non-conceptual. And so, why would you go out? You know, if you're, if you're living in the best restaurant in the world, why would you go out? Why would you go for takeout? Why would you go off to a hamburger joint? When you're living in, you know, the three-star best restaurant in the world. You just eat at home all the time. But, if you lived in that restaurant and all of your all of your meals were being dished up by the best chef in the world, there's one thing that would happen. You should get very attached to the, the food you're getting at home. Right? Really attached. Go down to the second best restaurant in the world, it'd be, oh no, not that again. Yeah. And so likewise, what is your mind doing when you're resting in the substrate consciousness, vividly, lucidly? <sighs> get really attached to the bliss the luminosity and the non-conceptuality. And that's doing something. That's really doing something. Attachment always entails doing something. I want, I want, I want. It may, may, may not even be articulating, I want this, but the tentacles of grasping, the tentacles of preference can be very intense. Dujum linga. You experience bliss um, like the warmth of the fire. Luminosity like the breaking of the dawn non-conceptuality, like an ocean unmoved by a wave. And you'll not be able to bear emerging from that state. The attachment will be so strong that they come out to this world of all these things. Or you, you just, oh, why? Give me a glass of water, a bowl of rice, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so enormous attachment, really strong attachment can arise. And that's doing something. And so as long as one is still doing something there, and the tentacles of attachment may not be evenly distributed, some people will be much more drawn to cling and grasp onto the bliss. For other people, it will be the luminosity, and for others, it will be the non-conceptuality. It comes with temperament. But as long as that's there, then your subtle mind is doing something, and what it's doing is blocking you. 
blocking you from taking even one step on the path to enlightenment. So you have to do less. You have to do less. And it's awesomely challenging to rest in there, to withdraw the tentacles of grasping and attachment, to withdraw even the preference to bliss over not bliss, luminosity over non-luminosity, to non-conceptuality over conceptuality, to remove, to release the preference, to rest in the substrate consciousness and not do anything, not even that. There's a possibility there that you may just, having done really nothing, not even that, then break through the substrate consciousness to Ripa. And in one text by Garabdoje, Prahivacha, first teacher of Dzogchen in this historical era, he says very clearly, I didn't read it in the Tibetan, but in a book translated by Eric Pemakunsan, as you know, very, very good translator, he made it quite clear that what you're breaking through, what are you breaking through? You're breaking through the substrate, not coarse mind. You want to break through the coarse mind, Pakistan. That's enough. But to break through even the conventional, let alone the reification, the grasping under the true existence of your mind. For that you need vipassana. But to break through even the conventional sense of mind, even the conventional, this is my mind, this is who I am, to break through even that without the reification, just attending it conventionally, for that you need Dzogchen. You break through. So it's from that perspective of not doing anything that you break through to Dhammakaya, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness. That's why the the that's why I think his own is the not so easy. Not so easy. Yeah. So now question number two. Just the issue of the um, dualistic mind. I always find the language difficult, subject object. Intellectually I can grasp it, but I do find it difficult to fit my way into it. So if you could help with that. Sure. Hope so. Something interesting about primordial consciousness, which we often speak of five primordial, primordial wisdoms, I find that a bit too chunky in terms of a translation. Mirror-like wisdom, mirror-like primordial wisdom, primordial wisdom of the Dhamma doctrine, and so forth, as if they're kind of like five things up there. So the term, I know this is a bit, I'm, I'm circling in. The term is Yeshe. Yeshe Nga. Nga is five. Yeshe. Ye is primordial. White means primordial. No beginning. She, conscious. Knowing. Really simple. Primordial knowing. Five. Primordial knowing. So, clearly, pristine awareness, primordial consciousness, or is beyond all conceptual elaborations. There it is. Beyond Whatever you think, it's beyond that. And so, in the classic Dzogchen literature, of which I know very little, but I, I've been guided through a little tiny sliver, which is a really good sliver, Vajra Essence and so forth, they speak, the classic text, the great teachers speak of eight Conceptual elaborations, extremes. And one of the, one pair, they come in four pairs. 
is shikantate. That the prime, this dimension of being, this dimension of awareness, is beyond the distinction of is it one or is it many? In the universe, is there just one primordial consciousness? Or are there many? Like one for each sentient being. Transcends the question. Cannot say it's just one. Cannot say it's many. Does not compute. It's beyond the question. And whatever you come up with, it's beyond the question. So don't even try to answer. It's beyond the question. Right? So, one facet of primordial consciousness. Sosutope yeshe. Sosutope yeshe. Yeshe, primordial consciousness. Sosutopa means individually discerning, individually realizing. So, a complete lack of blurring. Lack of blurring. A lack of blending. A lack of nebulous. Sharp, crystal clear, distinctive. Seeing everything that is distinct as distinct. And that's part of Buddha mind. That's part of Dharmakaya. So it's not just, oh, it's all one. No, it's not one, it's not many, it's none of the above. But one facet of primordial consciousness. And that's how I choose, rather than calling five primordial wisdoms, if we think of one jewel with five facets, light shining through it, refracted here, there, there, in different five different ways, as we try to rise, raise the conceptual mind up to get some glimmering of what that might contain. Then, the simple point, and why it now relates to your question, dualistic mind, is that even from the perspective of Dharmakaya, pristine awareness, when the Buddha was talking to, De- to his cousin Devadatta, did he think that he was Devadatta? Well, he's stupid. He wasn't Devadatta. He was the Buddha. Devadatta was a very troubled individual. He tried to kill him. And so, and when the Buddha is eating his bowl of food, does he think, oh, I'm rice. Boy, why do I taste yummy? You know, it's ridiculous. He's not a bowl of rice. He's a Buddha. That's not a sentient being. He's an awake being. So, on one level, the Buddhas recognize what's going on. In this world of multiplicity, if you're not, if, if you weren't, you'd be myopic. You'd be, you'd be retarded. Not to be aware of this versus that. Are there men and there are women? Are they the same? No, they're not, they're not the same. They're different. Adults and children, they're different, and so forth. Differences all over the world. And with, from the perspective of pristine awareness, one recognizes differences as differences. And things that are not the same is not the same. Subject is not the same as object. And so it's just being realistic, not to just confuse everything. Otherwise, Buddhahood would be the perfection of confusion, fusing everything together. Oh, it's all one. It's so boring. Everything's one. So, not that. So what is meant there, it's meant, it, it means different things in different contexts, but I'll, I'll focus on one theme that runs through much of the Mahayana and absolutely saturates Dzogchen. And that is, while attending to appearances that arise more objectively and appearances that arise more subjectively, attending to them, it's almost like one has a mental seizure. I think I mentioned that term yesterday as an analogy. It's like one has a mental seizure. And so imagine, I'll try to do this with my hands, appearances arising objectively, subjective responses arising. 
and there's a double seizure. But now, suddenly, that which was just arising, transparent, empty, luminous, clear, effervescent, has now gone into seizure. Oh, you did that. I didn't do that. And now you're way over there and I'm way over here. And there's a whole lot of nothing in between. Even if we're face to face, there's still some real nothing in between. Standing each other down. So it's that seizure. When in the Buddhist tradition, again, I'll, just for simplicity's sake, I'll just speak from what I think is the deepest perspective there is. As if I have it, but I, I've learned something about it. The Dzogchen perspective. That the Zunzin, ah, there's, I practice daily now and, And it starts with refuge in Buddhajita so often. And here's the line. That's it. So my mother and father, all sentient beings, my mother, father, sentient beings, who are crazed. Nyupa. Nyupa means crazed, deluded, kind of like bunkers. My parents, sentient beings, who are crazed by zunzinyiki, the sleep of dualistic grasping. In order to awaken them, to their primordial Dhammakaya. I generate the spirit of Bodhicitta. I generate Bodhicitta. So, the powerful analogy with a non-lucid dream. Powerful analogy. It's a non-lucid dream. It's the best analogy. There are many analogies. The mirage, the reflection in a pool, the echo, and so forth and so on. But I like the one. Oh, I really like the one of the non-lucid dream. Because in a non-lucid dream, the people who appear, the objects that appear, inanimate objects, appear, they appear to be radically over there. And we grasp onto them as radically over there. We appear to be radically over here. And we grasp onto ourselves as over here. And now the machine is set forever to suffer. Not just because their appearance is there and appearance is here, but because of this seizure that sets in, where we're, it's just like a spasm of the mind that not getting it gets it wrong. Grasp onto that, and then grasp onto this, and then everything sets in motion. Because we, de- we, because we desire happiness, we should be free of suffering. Then we just don't end, end in a static seizure, but now this reified sense of self, I want happiness, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of reified objects, some of them animate, some of them inanimate. And now what can I do to find happiness? And so that's dualistic grasping. That's it. And it lies at the root of all the other mental illnesses. It comes out of ignorance, out of not knowing. And the strategy for overcoming it is all of Dharma. Does that answer the question? Is that Oh, good, good. good. Once in a while my arrow hits a target. Anything else coming up? Oh ho, Venerable, Venerable Anila.
She's going to trick me. Watch. It can be really tough. If I don't know, you and I are going to just tell you I don't know. That's the easiest answer. And it's the most incontrovertible one. If I tell her I don't know, believe me, there's no debate that will persuade me otherwise. What's up? Okay, we've been talking about shamatha, vipassana. We're talking about trekcha. We're talking about togya. We have done so. Yes. Now, why is the stage of uh, generation and completion necessary? They're not. And again, my opinion really doesn't matter at all. If I were a frog, my opinion would have as much importance as Alan Wallace as a scholar or whatever. It has no significance. So when I'm saying that, where does it come from? It comes from Dujon Lingba. Dujon Lingba, Vajra Essence. And here's what he says. And that he lays out, he opens up the text. There's Shamata, there's Vipassana. And then there's a big chunk of the, sec- the middle section of the text, about 200 pages. It's long. Magnificent, detailed presentation of multiple facets of stage regeneration. Classic, dealing with the five Buddha families, rather than going to Tara or Manjushri or one or the other. Classic, archetypal, really archetypal, kind of universal. Marvelous display with the Buddha fields on all of that, lays that all out. And then after that, detailed on Poa is there, Chu is there, Tek, uh, uh, Dumo is there. Goes into multiple practices, the, the classic practices from stage of completion. Following those, then of course, classic procedure. Then comes, it's quite interesting what comes then. You think, whoa, you're really up, you're really far along the path. You've got your shamatha nailed down. He says, do this until you achieve it. Yeah? Then vipassana, insight, emptiness of all phenomena. Do it until you achieve it. Here's stage of generation. Here's stage of completion. Like, whoa, you are so far away. You must be just meditating in mid-air all the time. And he finally comes, and then he comes to texture. What's the first teaching on texture? Now that it's maybe two-thirds of the way through the text. Four thoughts that turn the mind. Incredible. There you are meditating on the precious human rebirth and death and permanence and so forth. He lays them out. That's the preliminary for texture. Now in terms of the other preliminaries, Adrasattva, prostrations and so forth, he doesn't even listen by name. Way towards the beginning of the text, he said, there are preliminaries, there are seven of them, do them. Okay, moving on. He doesn't even say which seven. It could be multiple sevens. In the Chetsunyintik, there are seven. Referring to those? Or there are other, another list of seven that comes in the Dujum lineage. Was that one, or can we be sure? We're practicing three methods of shamatha and the four measurables. That's seven. Could that, could that work? He didn't say. He didn't even say which one was seven. He just said seven. That's kind of like an open invitation. When he's getting way up there to texture, four thoughts that turn the mind, as the mundo, preliminary, then the main practice, and then onto direct crossing over, and then gives the different levels of rainbow body, then wraps up when he finished, he's finished the whole path. And then the, the bodhisattvas get up in concert and they say, yeah, but what if we don't finish in this lifetime? Says, oh, in that case. And then he gives this incredible teaching on the six bhagas and wraps it up. That, that'll do it. That's a, that's a wrap. And it's over. So all of that. Well, then, so there's that path, and it's quite familiar. You've seen that, that sequence in multiple Dzogchen classic teachings, the layout of the whole path. But what he, sta- what he states 
And I don't know, since I'm really, really not a Dzogchen scholar, really not, not even close. People like Richard Barron and Matthew Kapstein and quite a number of others, let alone the many Tibetans. I'm, I'm not even in their league. I just had teaching in a few texts. But I do know this in the Vajra essence, which covers the whole path. What he does say is for those, as he, after he's finished Shamatha Vipassana, he said, for those who are drawn to elaboration, for those who like an elaborate path, who like that, here we go. Put on your seatbelt, and we're in for a 200-page ride, stage regeneration and completion. And he says, for those who are not drawn to elaboration, texture, it's directly to texture, he skips stage regeneration and completion. So that's what I teased out of the text. I didn't read that in. It's there. Um, but that's what I got out of it. Because I've worked so extensively with the text. When you translate it, you go through many, many times. You kind of get familiar with it. Um, but it did feel a little bit like, maybe that's an interpretation. Did I get that right? Did he really say that? And then I think in our one-on-one conversations, I commented that after having translated this 400-page text, then a few years back, when I was in Wales, leading a one-week retreat just on the opening section, Shamata, which is now this book, Still in the Mind, uh, I got just curious. It was a rather lightweight retreat. I was only teaching five or, five or six hours a day. Normally I teach more. And meditating. You know. And so I had time on my hands. And I have his whole collected works on my computer. And so I went back to the volume and just got curious uh, what comes right after the Vajra Essence in that volume of the teachings of Jujun Lingba. And lo and behold, there, there was this much, much shorter text, only 80 pages. Uh, it was called The Intent of Samadabhadra. And so, well, that turned out to be another mind treasure. came out maybe a year or two after the Vajra Essence came out. I think it came out after. And so I started reading that. And then, ooh, I just got sucked into it. Like, wow. He took the 400 pages and he just went like, and crunched it down, took all the essence of it and put it into a text one-fifth as long. The whole path. And he says it. This is it. That's it. But he only focuses on four practices. And that you can't read it any other way. There's nothing there in state regeneration or completion. It's shamatha, vipassana, detecture, turtgel. That's it. So that was kind of like, oh, maybe I didn't overinterpret the big one. That's actually what he meant. And then years after that, then I got curious. I'm kind of slow on the curiosity, I guess. But I got, what came after that? One of my students said, Alan, what comes after the, int- the intent of Samadabhadra? Because I was teaching that in one retreat. And I, I said, I don't know. I said, why don't you check? And so I did. And this is the last one in that whole volume of his Mind Treasures on Dzogchen. And it turned out to be a ten-page text. Ten pages. The Sharp Vajra Tantra, Sharp Vajra Tantra Conscious Awareness. It's ten pages in verse. Now he took that and then, like with you know, Vajra fist, crunched it down into ten pages. Ten pages covers the whole path. Happily, he wrote a hundred-page commentary to it <laughs> that unpacks it. And so I've translated both of those. Uh, but once again, only four practices come up. Shamada, Vipassana, Techa, Jodhya. Now, there are rare cases for people like a, oh, Mingadoje, you know, from the Kamachakna lineage, Mingyu Doji. He was born enlightened. He was just born like Incredible. So at the age of eight, he was Kamachakna's guru. 
and Kamachane. It was like a Tsongkhapa figure, fantastic erudition, vast realization, so forth. He had a, a mutual guru-disciple relationship with an eight-year-old. Because this child had such incredible, spontaneous wisdom just coming out. So there are, there are individuals like that. Uh, these, you know, mind-boggling prodigies. And so Dujunling comments, it does happen that some people will achieve complete awakening just with Shamatha Vipassana and then texture alone. Could happen. With the full power, all the power of Dhanakaya comes out. But by and large, you really need four. Now, the other two aspects, and of course one can augment this with lojong practices and all kinds of practices. And obviously, in many, many cases, the vast majority, if not all, of great Dzogchen masters that we know of did augment, including Dujum Lingma, he speaks about his sage generation practice, uh, did augment their the fourfold manifold with stage regeneration and some degree of stage of completion. Um, so they are there, they're on standby to really facilitate, to to oil the gears of the texture and turkey above all. Because they're based upon Shamadeva Vipassana. That's first, that's foundation. And then stage regeneration completion. But it's really to the extent necessary, to the extent that it's helpful. As opposed to in the new translation schools, like Tsongkhapa doesn't write about Dzogchen. And boy, when he's laying out stage regeneration, he's saying, do this until you're finished. Hardly anybody does that. They, they want to leave off to doing Dumo and all kinds of other things. But when you're following that developmental route, you do your Lamrim, you develop your Bodhicitta, your Shamatha, your Vipassana, you gain realization of emptiness, and then you go into your stage of regeneration and you finish it, and then you go into stage of completion and you finish it, and then you're a Buddha. The text I'm translating right now, in spare moments, you know, like 50 minutes after lunch, whatever, uh, this uh, Chitin take. Um, he also speaks in the same vein, of course, as Dujun Lingba, and he said, you know, once you realize Rigpa, recognize this just surpasses all other methods. Once you've gotten that taste, don't clutter it. And he makes explicit reference to investigating as in Vipassana, to doing stage of completion practices as in the melting and the bliss and all of that visualizing deities and so forth. He explicitly refers and said, there's no comparison. If you can tap into this, this covers it all. And Dujum Lingba says, all of these other practices, all the deities of Sri generation, all of that, all of these are simply created displays of pristine awareness. Tap into that, keep it simple. Just do that. That's what they say. So I'm just a reporter. You know that. Just report. So good. Hola, so. So enjoy your Sunday. May it be a blessed day full of benefit. And do whatever you find to be most beneficial. And it's your own business. Okay? And I like the phrase at the end of the week, see you around.